This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Rachel Michaelberg, author of the new book, Crash, How I Became a Reluctant Caregiver, just out from She Writes Press. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Marianne. It's wonderful to have you here, and I'm delighted that you were able to join us. My audience is writers, and your book presents some unique and thorny writing issues. So let's jump right into those with a little setup in the form of background story. Your marriage is unsteady, you have children together, and your husband is in a plane crash that is nearly fatal, casting you into the role of a reluctant caregiver. Wow. So much of that would have prevented most people from writing a book. At what point did you start considering this as a writing project? You know, it wasn't until about four years after the crash that it sort of hit me that I had this story. I had no real background as a writer. I had no formal training. I was a professional singer and cantor in a synagogue opera singer, musical theater. That was my life. That was my passion, in addition, of course, to my family. It just wasn't even a, an inkling that I would ever write a book, any kind of a, of a thought. I never had that thought. And yet, as I began to look back at those awful, awful years and those terrible decisions that I had to make and the situation in my family, I decided that It was a story that really needed to be told because I made Mm -hmm. a decision that was very unpopular. And I grappled Mm -hmm. with that decision, the guilt and feeling like I had let people down, the societal expectations. I grappled with it so much and I felt so much incredible um, sorrow and regret for how those decisions affected my family. I really didn't write it as a, a means of catharsis. Uh, that a lot of people asked me, "Did you do it to to process it and to achieve some closure?" That really wasn't how it started out. It ended mm-hmm. up that way, but mm-hmm. I just had this kind of crazy story. One of those stories, like you don't make this stuff up. And I also wanted to give people permission to consider their options. So that's when it happened. Not until about four years after. That's interesting. You mentioned that you're a singer. You're, you're also a gardener, a cook, a music and voice <laughs> teacher, and now a writer. And not necessarily in that order, maybe anymore. But did any of those inform you? Did the singing, gardening, cooking, music and voice teaching, is there something that sort of stepped forward in your... I mean, I, I knit, I cook, I garden. I have to always be putting stuff out or I think I might explode. <laughs> I don't know. We <laughs> oh, haven't tested I know it that yet. Feeling. But, <laughs> but did, did, did some of those get kind of behind the project a little bit in, in some way that you could relate to? That is such a great question. Um, 
I think that one of the most exciting parts of music to me, of being a singer, is the communication. Mm. So many people concentrate on the technique, you know, how you breathe and how you hold your jaw. And all of those are extremely important, don't get me wrong. Uh, However, when I teach voice, the part that I love the most, the part that gets my juices flowing and my heart going a little bit pitter-pat, is when a student and I delve into the intention, the motivation of what the message is. What am I trying to say here in this song? Usually it's only Mm. a couple of minutes, which actually you can draw a parallel with a scene in a book. You know, there's got to be an arc, right? There's got to be not only an arc in the whole book, but, you know, with an exposition and then a, a pivotal moment and a resolution and all that. But within each chapter sometimes within each scene. And so uh, I had experience with that from my own performing. And with music, it's so true, even within a phrase, even within a note, when, I, when a student holds a note, it's like, don't just let it stay. It needs to move somewhere. And that really, I believe, influenced my writing a great deal. Not so sure about the gardening and the cooking. <laughs> they were more my, um, my I'm going to take a break now and go, I'm going to pr- take a break from the computer and go weeding now. Because with weeding, yeah. you know, you pull the weed and it's done. <laughs> Whereas when you're mm-hmm. writing, it's just like, ah, you, you know, sometimes you feel like your head is going to explode because, um, you know, did I say this the right way? Is it clear? Did I use the right word? So there's a yeah. there's a immediate gratification, <laughs> um, and but I, I would say definitely my music and my acting experience, mm-hmm. being on stage and uh, developing a character, thinking about intonation, mm-hmm. thinking about inflection, and so on. That's wonderful. I think it'll help people who are thinking about a book who have never yet written a book about where you can pull from, where you can annotate from. And in this case, it's just so important because if there's a Bermuda Triangle for writers, it's the combo of guilt, grief, and shame, all of which Mm. might have prevented another writer from going into this tale. But you sailed right into that damn Bermuda Triangle. And I don't think this is a plot-driven book, so I can say that you do leave the... The marriage does break up, and he, he doesn't fully recover before it does. It's not that. It's not that story. So I want to talk about how much trepidation you might have felt sailing into such a Bermuda Triangle. It's really worth helping others who might be saying, oh, well, I can't write about that. Well, you have the trifecta there of the reasons that people might not tell their tale. So how much trepidation and what was it that allowed you to mitigate that? I'm assuming there has to have been trepidation. Oh, yes, of course. Um, you know, I, I liken my story and, and I, a lot of memoirs that I've read and uh, uh, people that write very honestly about their trauma to like stripping naked and standing there and saying, okay, everybody now judge me because, um, <laughs> because it really is like, like pivoting slowly and saying, okay, and that's what's going to happen uh, next week when mm-hmm. my book is published. Yeah. And I'm revealing major flaws about myself mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I, I'm going to get judged for. But, you know, that's what makes a story interesting, you know. <laughs> and it's not, I didn't write it because it was interesting. I wrote it because it was my truth. And there was shame at the time, but there isn't shame anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's Good. an important journey. And, you know, 
all the time that I was writing it, I think I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to publish it, but I, I just didn't believe that anybody would really be interested in publishing. I didn't know. I just didn't know. I just did my mm -hmm. best to write the best story that I could. And so I am nervous, and uh, there are some antagonists in my book who are still very much alive, who may be mm -hmm. not so happy that I wrote about them and, and some pretty horrible things that they did to me. And so mm -hmm. there is that nervousness too. Um, and yet I felt, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. <laughs> I was brought up uh, in California with that kind of, you know, I did the EST training and I, I was just sort of taught from the time I was tiny that unless you're telling your truth and unless you're being open and honest, then you're hiding something. And so I think that's always been in my nature to to be pretty direct and pretty open. I actually had to learn as an adult boundaries and how, and filters and how not to share everything all the time. That isn't always productive, but as a writer, it can be very productive. And so that's where I went. Yeah, and perfectly so. And in the story in, in your life and learning about the boundaries of caregiving, I think it's very, very important. It's a great lesson, that boundaries thing. So, so let's talk about the, the reporting process for this book. Taking notes can be an absolute lifesaver. I've stood in some fairly terrible places in my life, but in, uh, and including my own reluctant step into being a long-term caregiver. But with that notebook in my hand, I can endure almost anything. I don't know why. I mean, you keep your head down, you write it down, you see the act of you writing it down. Maybe it relieves some of the sting. But that's me. What about you? As you were reporting this process, as you were going back and, and reclaiming those interactions with the doctors and with the lawyers and, and, and with your family, um, was the reporting providing you some distance, some perspective on looking at it? As you said, it was four years after the accident, but it wasn't four years after everything. It was, it was still, you know, you were still reliving some of the horror of all of this. So... How about the reporting? What kind of perspective did it allow you to have? Well, it was sometimes it was much more than four years because the entire process took me about eleven years. Um, mm -hmm. I it took me a very long time to write it. I was a brand new writer, didn't really know what I was doing, and I was raising two children. And I wish that I had had a notebook. I wish that I had kept a journal and written down all of the feelings that I had during that time and all of the, just to process, but I didn't. And so I had to rely mm -hmm. on my memory. I went to, uh, to people in the, quote unquote, the scenes that I imagined, that I visualized in my memory, and I asked them directly, do you remember when we talked about this? Do you remember, do you have any recollection mm -hmm. of what the room looked like? <laughs> because, you know, you're adding sensory details, is, mm -hmm. is, I learned, is such an important part of writing, what we said, what the, how you felt during that time. And there were some wonderful, wonderful memories that people were able to share with me. And the rest of it, of course, I had to reimagine, which mm -hmm. was a skill in of itself as uh, writing a scene based on truth, but of course not remembering every word that was said. I mm -hmm. did look at some of the transcripts of uh, depositions I had done in some of the lawsuits, and I did reach out to the lawyers and the doctors. Uh, but of course, with HIPAA, you cannot get 
medical information. So I needed to call doctor friends of mine and say, in this kind of a situation, would this procedure have been done? And so on. It's a great answer because I think people think either you were taking notes or you have an immaculate memory and neither is true most of the time. So you went back and you did the reporting and and that's just so helpful to people. I, I so appreciate the honesty there. And the way you portray yourself, I also really appreciate. In memoir, we've got to define ourselves in terms of this one story we're telling. And it does you no good to give us your height, weight, body type description. But one of the things you do nicely is swear right there on the page. It's great. We get to know you. It makes us trust you. You're human. You report to us that the doctor who is asking you how you are knows that you're just being perfunctory when you say, I'm okay. And, and he knows, as you say, that that's just horseshit. <laughs> so I love that. And it's very early in the book. And, it, and we have to trust you because you don't stay in the marriage. And I thought that was a brilliant thing to seed into the beginning of the book. At what point were you comfortable writing the word horseshit, right? Like writing who you are as you actually speak. And, and were you conscious of the fact that we had to trust you enormously for us to, to go through this book? I was not conscious of that fact. I learned at the beginning, I learned to be conscious of it mm -hmm. uh, through my writing classes and learning that that is uh, an important factor in when you're creating your voice uh, when you're in the throes of writing to, to develop a voice. I didn't even know about that before. I was an avid reader, but I didn't know anything about voice, which is interesting because I'm a singer, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it was very interesting because I'm always telling my singers, don't copy the recording. You know, don't copy Barbara Streisand or Frank Sinatra or whoever. Uh, you've, got, you've got to sing it your way. And there you go. Mm -hmm. Kind of a universal truth. <laughs> as far as, as really being direct with the language, you know, one of the first writing classes I took, she brought up the work of Natalie Goldberg in Writing Down mm -hmm. the Bones. And the advice was just write, just let it out, don't stop, don't judge, don't edit, just write, 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 write. And when I was doing that, that's what came out because I try to use my swear words judiciously so they have a greater impact in my own personal... Uh, uh, unlike, unlike, um, unlike some young people these days, it's, it's, uh, I try not to overuse them. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I just that's how I think. So I wrote how I think. Mm -hmm. That's good, and it helps because, yeah, we do have to trust you. It's very, very... Very important. And, and I'm fascinated by the opening scene. And, talk, and, and we do trust you right from the beginning. You, the one you settle on is dramatic. And I'm, I'm not going to give it away because I want people to go buy the book and read it. But it, the opening scene has nothing to do with a plane crash or caregiving. Instead, gets at the central theme of the book. Because this book is not about the plane crash. It's about what? Let us into how you chose mm. the opening scene and when and how that clarified for you what this book is really about. So I have a great editor. I did not, that was not my original choice for opening scene. It was mm -hmm. somewhere deep in the middle of the book. In the process of, of looking at the arc and understanding that a hook is very important and something dramatic, mm -hmm. for example, when Cheryl Strayed's boot falls down the cliff in Wild, that's the very first thing that happens. And yet 
it actually, mm-hmm. in time, it happens in the middle of her story or maybe even closer to the end. But it, it is such a pivotal moment because it represented, it represented for her the ludicrousness of what she was doing, right, um, yep. in, in taking that hike. And so in my opening scene, uh, I hope it's a symbol, it's a metaphor for my being unwilling or, and or unable to make the choice to, to remain my husband's full-time caregiver, to stay in the marriage, to take on that role that had been thrust upon me. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just brings us full focus into what we think, oh my goodness, what's this going to be about? I loved that. So you chose to write this book in, in vignettes, small, powerful scenes separated within each chapter by dotted lines. And the result is, is the feeling that you have a deck of cards in your hand and you're laying them out on a table in front of us, one at a time, kind of like a tarot reading. I found it very effective and utterly lacking in the interstitial. You know, you didn't give us the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday version of the story, thank goodness. You gave it to us in these card-like slapping them down on the table. And this connects one piece to the other, and we cannot look away because we might miss something. Really good decision. Can you talk about how you made that decision to present the material the way you did? Oh, if you could see my smile right now, I <laughs> because I didn't make <laughs> I that. Feel it. <laughs> I never made that decision. I'm just I'm just grinning from ear to ear because it's 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 just so it's so interesting that you look at it that way. I, you know, not being a skilled writer, I didn't I didn't think. Oh, I'm going to this is going to be my structure. The way that I started is I referring back to what we were discussing earlier. I remembered scenes that were important. The scene with mm. the social worker, the scene where the, you know, the doctor tells me what the prognosis is and so on. And I wrote down the scenes, Just I just wrote them down, you know, on an eight and a half mm. by 11 sheet of paper, because that's how I still work most of the time. I want to do the scene with the doctor. I want to do the scene where I decided that my kids needed therapy. I just, you know, I wanted to, I just, there were things that I, pivotal moments that that were playing like a movie in my mind. And then the challenge was, how do I connect them? How do mm. I make it more of a narrative? Um, and so it's po- <laughs> I'm glad to hear that it worked because it's I thought, oh, maybe my transitions aren't very good. Uh, You know, I didn't have the, I I think that the scene writing was the easiest part for me. The hardest part was the transitions, marrying them together Mm -hmm. and knitting them together to make a more cohesive narrative. And I'm glad to hear that it worked the way it did uh, because there were times when I just didn't know. (laughs) I did, I'm going to confess, I didn't know. I didn't didn't think the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday thing was important, you know, that we did this and then we went Mm. here and then we we did this. It was only important if it moved the story along. There you go. It's only important if it moves the story along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, And I think it really worked well 
Um, you have a couple of other devices that you use. You have this very amusing device that you use throughout, which is to show us your expertise on the two very important topics, medicine and law, that come into play in the accident and the attendant lawsuits via pop culture, specifically the television shows that you watched. You say, I watched a lot of ER and Grey's Anatomy, and so I know what he's coding means. And later on, when we get to the part where there's a, a you know trial, you talk about watching Ellie McBeal. And I just, I really have to say I loved you for it. I thought... It's a mm. it's a rare person that admits that my knowledge begins and ends here, and I'm proud of it. So I felt also in that that it was very endearing, and I wondered, mm. you know, if you were uncomfortable at first or or comfortable right from the start because you knew the characterization of you again was so important. That one was really charming. How did you come up with that kind of admission? Well, my goal was again to be honest and. That did occur to me that it, when I was in the hospital, I think it was a, a means of, of coping, is that mm-hmm. I remember sitting in the waiting room thinking of, of the ICU and when he was coding and thinking, you know, just these images of ER flashing through my head. <laughs> and so when I was remembering that scene, it was when I was reimagining that scene, I just, it popped up and... And I wanted humor. See, I never meant for it to be, I don't have any knowledge about medicine or law. What I really wanted to say was, it was kind of poking fun at myself in that, you Mm -hmm. know, aren't I amazing? I I have this knowledge that came from television. So it was really being a little bit self-deprecating, which... Yeah, I've works. been told, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been told works. And it's, they're all true. I did watch those shows. <laughs> and, we, you know, I think there's a part of us that thinks we have some kind of knowledge and we're in, somehow informed when we, we really aren't. Well, I think we are in terms of a little bit. And that's what you were saying. And I, and I think, again, when I try to teach people how to do self-characterization, it's complicated. They always want to give me their eye color, their height, their weight, what college they went to, their father's salary, whatever. And none of that mostly relates to the story at hand. And this is a great little piece of characterization. The other device that I found really endearing and charming and also very curious is is your child, your both of your children, your daughter's school journal entries, which really give us this sort of flyover of the level of stress in the house, and your son who slips notes and letters um, under your door and, and puts them places. A lot of people come to me with that kind of material. You know, I've got my daughter's journal or I've got my son's emails that he sent me. And, you know, you've got to curate them. You've got to really only pull from them what we need to know. It's too easy to defer and let somebody else tell the story. You're like, well, just read this. You'll get it. No, no, no. So curating other people's material, especially your children, is a really begins with permission. So getting permission from your kids did they understand? Were you? I mean, I saw in the acknowledgments you thanked them, and as you should. Um, but just talk a little bit about, you know, asking them for that material, or did they offer that material, or did you know how did that go? Well, it was a little bit like the swearing. I put it in, not knowing if I was going to use it because it was so heart wrenching, and. It gave me chills when I when I went. I remembered that they had these school journals, and there were various things that I had kept from them. 
various pieces of art and drawings. And I went back and looked at them and I, it just, I thought this is, this is, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. I, I, I don't know. In this, in this case, it was these words are worth so much more than any words that I could put into their mouths. They wrote these as, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. And it really showed their state of mind during that time so much more than I could. So I did not ask their permission then. I asked it later. Mm. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they gave it to me. My daughter still has not read the book. She is a very mm-hmm. sensitive, very emotional person and understands that she just doesn't have the capacity yet. And she's 24 mm-hmm. now. My mm-hmm. son has read it and is, they're both very proud of me. But I, mm-hmm. I have to be honest, I did not ask their permission at the time because they were too young when I read mm-hmm. that section. They were just, I just didn't think that they were going to be able to understand the ramifications of those, of, of what, if those words being published in, in print. Uh, and so I'm just so grateful that they, that they gave me their permission. It's clearly a good example of, of not waiting to write. I say to people frequently, just write it. Let's see what you've got. And then we can go and we can show it to just the people who need to see it. Tell the people who need to know this is coming out, that it's coming out. But people have so many reasons not to write. And this book, mm, oh, I don't know. I can't think of one recently that I've read that has more reasons not to be, you know, more obstacles to its writing, right? And I think that it's better to just get it down, don't share it with anybody, or share it with a, a small group of dedicated people who are committed to your confidentiality. And then you can go and ask the permission. Let's see what you've got first. And I felt that also very strongly reading one of the scenes in the book when it comes to reporting the absolutely hardest topic of all, which I think is shame. You do this very direct thing that you got down on the page in basically two pages, which I found really fascinating. And it's it's not about your kids, so it, this is a bit of a jog off of that topic. But I really admired the fact that you are coming right to, it's called coming to a head. You show us the moment where you admit to a therapist, not only do you not want to care for your husband, but you don't think you can, and that you do not love him anymore, and that you are recognizing your own limitations. It's all done in two explosive pages. It all is set in a therapist's office. It's tight, it's true, it's intimate, but it is you telling us this core truth. And I think done as it is in the therapist's office was a really smart idea that we know that you were protected as you came into this. But it also must have been another one of those scenes that could have prevented you from ever writing this book. So can you talk about just giving yourself the permission to get that? I mean, your kids gave their permission for their work, but how did you give yourself the permission to just take the tourniquet off and bleed all over those two pages? You know, I could hardly breathe. I was crying so hard through that whole session yeah. uh, with the therapist. Yeah. And when the gut is just spilling out of you, the kishkis, I like to say, are just are, are so yes. raw, that's when the truth is present. And that's what the whole book is about, is mm-hmm. my uncomfortableness and my 
my terror actually to go further with it in admitting mm-hmm. that this is my truth and that I have to go there or I will not be able to care for my children, care for myself. It would have been a, a life of, I would dread the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. that in turn would have affected everyone around me, especially my children and my husband. So there was never a question in my mind that I had to go there. I had to go to that place of, of rawness, of exposure. And it was, you know, you asked me before about the reporting. I didn't write notes, but I did go to a lot of therapy, and that's where I was able to process all of this. And so mm-hmm. I was able to recreate that scene. Mm-hmm. Well, we're very glad you did, Rachel. And, and I mm. thank you um, for the book. I thank you for the effort, and I thank you here for the instruction, because I know that so many people listening to this have so many reasons not to write. And I think you just gently and kindly and, and very generously took on most of them. So thank you. I so appreciate you coming oh. along today, Rachel. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. You know, everyone has a story to tell. And I want to encourage everyone out there, tell your story. The author is Rachel Michaelberg, whose new book, Crash, How I Became a Reluctant Caregiver, is just out from She Writes Press. See more on her at rachelmichaelbergauthor.com. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 